Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you would open your Bibles, please, to the book of Mark. We're going to be um, chapter 2, 23, to chapter 3, verse 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, there is a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you, so go ahead, grab one of those and open it to page 489. If you're new to the church and you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that home with you. We'd love that uh, to be our gift to you this morning. Mark chapter 2, it's been a little more than 100 years now since one of the kind of most uh, amazing inventions um, happened, occurred. Uh, It seems like we've had airplanes in the sky forever, but actually only for the last a little more than 100 years. It was uh, the Wright brothers, most of you probably know, Orville and Wilbur who uh, over the course of many years of working finally got a plane in the air in uh, 1908. And they were in uh, Le Mans, France at the time, Uh, Americans, but they were in France. And uh, on a Saturday, uh, they managed to get this craft in the air. The flight was two minutes and went two miles. That was all it was, and yet it was an international phenomenon. Within 24 years, even in 1908, the word spread, and everybody knew that this miraculous thing happened. And so you can imagine the excitement of what it must have been like to see something flying through the air uh, for the first time. And uh, people were, of course, excited for it to happen again. And so they said, Wilbur, let's, let's do this again. Uh, let's do it as soon as possible. Uh, let's do it tomorrow. Well, you might have heard me mention that uh, the flight happened on a Saturday. Tomorrow would be Sunday. And Wilbur Wright said, as a good American, I would never think of breaking the Sabbath. No, we're not flying tomorrow. The world would wait another day would wait until Monday to see an airplane get in the air again. That's how seriously Wilbur Wright took the Sabbath. I don't know that there's a whole lot about Wilbur Wright's faith, but nonetheless, he took the Sabbath very seriously. It was just kind of ingrained in our culture. That's something that we have pretty much lost in our culture today, isn't it? I remember growing up and having a hard time finding a store to go to or a restaurant to eat in on a Sunday because everything was closed. Uh, Of course, we know there are a few exceptions. Chick-fil-A still does not open on Sunday, but they are um, one of the very few exceptions to this rule. This is something we've lost in this culture, this whole sense of Sabbath. Um, And that's something that there's a lot of reasons, I think, to, to lament that. In Jesus' day, The problem was the exact opposite. It wasn't that they didn't take the Sabbath seriously enough. It was that some people took the Sabbath too seriously. Uh, They took it so seriously that they loaded the Sabbath with all sorts of rules and regulations and restrictions, and they ended up taking what was supposed to be the best day of the week and turned it into the worst day of the week. And that's what we're going to be looking at here. That's what this passage this morning is about. Uh, The Sabbath, as Brian mentioned uh, a moment ago, is 
the one day in seven that God set aside for his people to rest. And in Jesus' day, that day was Saturday, the seventh day of the week, because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week. We consider as Christians the Sabbath to be Sunday. Um, So Saturday, back in Jesus' day, uh, but there was this group of people called the Pharisees, and um, they kind of made a mess of the Sabbath. I mean, we have to commend them and that they took it very seriously, but... um, they loaded up the Sabbath again with so many restrictions, they kind of ruined the day. And it kind of brings to mind a couple of ways that the Christian faith can be distorted or kind of misunderstood. One is, is license or licentiousness. Uh, that's this kind of idea that, it, it, that, that it's all grace and no law. You know, God is a God of mercy and love and grace. Everybody can do what is right in his own eyes. There are no standards. There are no absolute truths that any of us need to be concerned about. It's all grace. And that leads to situations like today where very few people take the Sabbath seriously. <clears throat> but another way to distort the Christian faith is through what we call legalism. Legalism. That's where there's no grace and it's all law. It's all rules. It's all restrictions. It's all policy. And that is what we're going to see happening here in this passage that we are about to read. I don't know if you've ever been in a legalistic church before, but legalism can be very destructive, very debilitating, very discouraging. And um, we need to be on the lookout for it, and um, we need to avoid both of these extremes. This passage is going to help us understand that. So if you're able to stand, please do so. I'm going to start Mark 2, 23. We actually looked at this text just briefly a few weeks ago, um, 23 through the end of the chapter, but we're going to read that and then add chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 as well, as we think about Jesus and the Sabbath. 2.23, one Sabbath he, that's Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. 
Holy Spirit, would you please open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, Jesus and the Sabbath. How how does Jesus relate to this particular approach to the the Sabbath? That's the occasion of uh, this message today, but, but we're really thinking about this problem of legalism that um, tends to infect churches from time to time, and I want to allow this text to show us some of the things about legalism that are very distasteful, things we should avoid, reasons why it's something not pleasing to God. So the first thing I want to show you uh, is a definition of legalism. We might say this, there, there's a lot of different forms of legalism, but I think this is a pretty good summary. Legalism is the tendency to regard as divine law things which God has neither required nor forbidden in Scripture and the corresponding inclination to look with suspicion on others for their failure or refusal to conform. Kind of a long definition there, but anytime we take certain requirements, rules, restrictions, we elevate them to kind of a divine status, even when they never appear in Scripture, either as something required or forbidden, and then from there we begin to look with judgmental hearts on all of those who don't do things the way we think they should. That's legalism. If we can just reduce it to the most simplest, simple definition, legalism is when we find our assurance more in the things we're adding to God's law than in what God has done for us. That's legalism. And so the first thing that we want to see here in the text about the problem with legalism is that it entirely misses the point of God's law. Okay, That's what we're going to see here first of all. Legalism misses the point of God's law. <clears throat> so in, in this passage there are two incidents here and you've noticed probably that both of them occur on the Sabbath. And um, again, it's just it's hard to overestimate how important the Sabbath was to your average Jew at the time. It was a symbol of great national pride. To defy the Sabbath was just the same as defying God directly to his face. It was regarded as a heinous kind of sin. Um, You know, we just celebrated the 4th of July this past week, and maybe you saw on the news that there were some people who um, were kind of speaking very critically of the United States on, on the 4th of July and kind of refusing to celebrate the 4th of July. And a lot of people very offended by that as Americans. You know, this is a day to celebrate our country, and you're rejecting what our country has stood for. That's just a tiny bit of what it must have been like in Jesus' day when people were not observing the Sabbath properly. And so this was so important to the Jews, in particular, very important to this group of Jews called the Pharisees. So these were not professional religious leaders or priests, but kind of a sect within Judaism. And they were so concerned to make sure that nobody violated the Sabbath. And there's a sense in which that's kind of a good concern. We have to be sympathetic with the Pharisees. We see the Pharisees as the bad guys when we look at the Bible, but actually their intention was rather good. They just did not want to see God's name desecrated or dishonored. And so they came up <coughs> with an enormous list of rules. In the Pharisees' mind, it's like here the, the best way to keep people from violating the Sabbath is to come up with all sorts of rules to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so they set up uh, like a fence, like a hedge 
around the Sabbath in the form of 39 categories of work that included up to 1,500 different rules about what you could or could not do on the Sabbath. And a few weeks ago, I shared a few examples of that, but others uh, among these rules that the Pharisees came up with, you couldn't fasten a button on the Sabbath. That would have been considered work. You couldn't cut your toenails on the Sabbath. That would have been considered work. You couldn't carry a needle with you in your cloak because there would be the temptation to get it out and start sewing, and then that would be work. So all of these rules, not in the Scriptures, nowhere in the Old Testament are any of these things said, but the Pharisees set these up in order to keep people from violating the Sabbath. But by doing this, even though it was a good intent, by doing this, they ended up turning what was a blessing from God into a burden. The Sabbath just became a burden. So many things to do. So many things I've got to be careful that I don't do. And that's what these two examples here show us, how the Pharisees were bringing this attitude. So let, let's look at these two things uh, quickly. <clears throat> First of all, we see uh, at the end of chapter 2, 23 to 28, it's this story of the disciples in the grain fields. All right, so it's the Sabbath, you see, verse 23. Um, Jesus with his disciples going through the grain fields, uh, and they begin to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees see this, and they're outraged by that, and they say, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus has a response to that, and he refers to an incident that's recorded in 1 Samuel 21. And in that portion of the Old Testament, we see this story of David, King David, lived about a thousand years prior. David and his men <clears throat> were um, hungry, it says in verse 25, and they were looking for some food, and they came across the tabernacle, and they thought, there's some bread in this place. They knew that there would be bread in there. And so they went in, and they said to the priest, can, can we have some of that bread? And the priest said, you know, this is, this is consecrated bread for sacred purposes. You know, you're really not supposed to be eating this. The priest would eat it at the very end of the week, but it wasn't, you know, like a, a tabernacle. It wasn't a restaurant or a fast food drive through there, you know, for people who were hungry and wanted some bread. That wasn't the original intent. But in this case, as Jesus is pointing out, the bread nonetheless was, was granted to David and his med, men, and, and, and they ate it. They, they were hungry, and they had this need. And so we might call this a work of necessity, or a deed of necessity. There's a situation here where you have some people who are in great need. They're hungry. They're, I don't know if they're starving, but they're very hungry. And so a human need is met by the provision of this bread for David and his men. And so Jesus is making the point that that's the same thing going on here with me and my disciples. We're hungry. And so we're going through the grain field, and we're taking care of our basic human needs. So that's Jesus' answer. It's kind of, a, again, a, a deed, a work of necessity. The second incident is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and this is the occasion of the man with the withered hand. And so now they're not in the grain fields anymore. They enter into the synagogue, and, and here is uh, this man with a disability. He's, he's a crippled man, withered hand. And Jesus 
calls this man forward, says in verse 3, come here. And um, he's being watched. Jesus knows that. And so he, he poses a, a question to, to, kind of, um, to kind of raise up the Pharisees' thinking from these mundane rules to the principle that is involved in the Sabbath. And so he asks this question in verse 4. He says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's setting them up, right? Because he knows that if the Pharisees are going to answer that the purpose of the Sabbath is to do good, then they would have no argument against Jesus. Because how could anybody say it's not good to heal a man with a withered hand? So they couldn't say good, because then their complaint is emptied of its force. But they're certainly not going to say that it's bad. (laughs) I mean, that's just self-evident, right? Nobody's going to say, sure, it's permissible to kill on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is about doing harm to other people. I mean, that's just self-evident. It's obvious. The Pharisees aren't going to say that. So Jesus has got them over a barrel here, you know? I mean, they can't say that it's to, to do good. They can't say that it is to do harm. And so we see at the end of verse 4, they were silent. <laughs> you know, you got to be careful about getting into a debate with Jesus. Uh, and generally, it's not going to go well. He, he's going to ask a question and leave you stumped, and that's the case here. They have no answer. And so um, Jesus calls on this man and he stretches out his hand, and his hand is fully restored. And you notice there in verse 5 that Jesus is looking at them with anger. He is so grieved at their hardness of heart. Friends, one thing we see here is that there are appropriate times to be angry. There is something that's called a righteous indignation. Scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Sin and don't, or be angry and do not sin. There is a sinful kind of anger. But there are certain evils and expressions of wickedness and godlessness in our world that ought to elicit some sort of anger. And that's going on here with Jesus. Jesus is not sinning by being angry. It's a righteous indignation because of the hardness of the heart of the Pharisees who are totally missing the point of the Sabbath and God's law. And it just makes Jesus mad. So... Jesus kind of finishes this, at least uh, the first incident, by bringing to us a principle. And by this principle, he's trying to show that the Pharisees are totally missing the point with all their legalistic rules. It's in verse 27. And Jesus says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's what you're missing, Pharisees. That's how you're missing the point. It's not like God has come up with a whole bunch of rules and regulations and now he wants to create a people to obey them. It's that God has created people and he wants to create law and rules and regulations to bless them. That's the different understanding. That's what the Pharisees are not getting. In these two cases, we have the Pharisees following their rules so devotedly that they won't feed the hungry and they won't allow a crippled man to be healed. And they can't see that. They can't see how their approach to the Sabbath is actually bringing harm to people instead of good. 
And so Jesus is pointing this out and challenging them on this. Now, our um, confession of faith in chapter one, actually, or chapter 21 actually talks um, about the duties on, that we are, uh, that should observe on the Sabbath. It says this, Westminster Confession 21, the Sabbath is to be kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. And so that's what we're seeing right here in this passage. Verses 23 to 28, deeds of necessity. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, deeds, works of mercy. Because both of these are appropriate for the Sabbath, since the Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath. Friends, the point here that is being totally missed is that the law of God, the Sabbath included, is given to you by God for your good. God didn't give you the law to restrict you, to weigh you down, to discourage you, to destroy your life, to limit all your freedoms. The law is given for your good. And in fact, if we look at Deuteronomy 12, it says, Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever. Nobody is saved by observing the law. We don't earn our salvation by obeying the law, but God gives us the law and gives you the law, gives me the law, that our lives would flourish, that we would live as God intended us to live, that things would go well with us. Now, that doesn't mean you obey the law and you'll never have trouble, you'll never get sick, you'll never lose a job. That's not what that means. But it means that when you set your life in obedience to the law of God, you will be living as you were designed to live. You'll bring God glory, and things in general will go well for you. And so when you think about the Sabbath in particular, I would ask you today, how is it that you look at the Sabbath? How is it that you consider your Sundays? When you think of it as a day of rest, do you think of that as an obstacle for you? Do you think of the rest that you're supposed to be taking on Sunday as something that is a burden are you thinking of Sunday and the rest that God has commanded you to observe as something that's getting in the way of all the things you want to do and accomplish? If that's the way you look at the Sabbath, you too are missing the point. The Sabbath is a gift. It's a blessing. It is intended, according to Exodus 23, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. That's the purpose of the Sabbath, that you'd be refreshed, restored, strengthened, encouraged, blessed. Legalism misses the point. It turns God's law, adds laws that don't bless, but become a burden. Second thing that we see is that legalism can lead also to pride and judgmentalism. Legalism leads to pride <clears throat> and judgmentalism. First thing I want to clarify here is that we, we need to um, notice that Jesus here is not abolishing the Sabbath. Okay? 
Uh, Matthew 5, 17, we see Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. Sabbath is part of the law. Or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus here is not saying, hey, don't worry about the Sabbath anymore. He's not encouraging license. And very often when we react to legalism, we can sometimes swing to the other side and become full of this attitude of, of license. And then anytime anybody says that I have any responsibility as a Christian, I just call it legalism. You know, if somebody says, you know, you really need to be reading your Bible. Or you really need to be coming to church on Sunday mornings. You, you really need to be resting on the Sabbath. You really need not to be looking at pornography. Friends, if somebody says that to you, that's not legalism. They're not being legalistic. What they're calling you to is obedience to the Scriptures. These are all things that can be abundantly supported in scriptures. So let's be careful as we react to legalism that we don't swing into license. But nonetheless, you might be asking yourself, well, what does legalism actually look like today? Because we don't have Pharisees anymore. And we don't have 1,500 rules here at New Life that we've laid out for you as to how to live on Sunday. So how does legalism show up today? <clears throat> well, there's a number of examples that we can think of. Uh, in some cases, there um, get to be rules and restrictions about the clothes that people should wear. I mean, should we wear a suit and tie on Sundays, or is it okay to wear shorts and a t-shirt? I mean, I, I don't know anywhere in the scriptures where that's directed to us, <laughs> but in some churches, you'll get certain rules set up about that, and people begin to feel very prideful when they obey this, and full of shame when they don't. Um, alcohol use is another very common example of legalism. Um, we know the scriptures are clear that we should not engage in drunkenness, and so some will say, well, since that's the case, you should never drink a glass of wine, and actually you should never even enter a liquor store. And so this becomes this additional rule, this regulation. Um, the size of the house that you live in, or the expense of the car that you happen to drive. Sometimes people will set up a rule in their mind. No Christian ought to be living in a house this size. No Christian ought to be driving a car that expensive. Even though we have nothing in the scriptures that would give us any direct counsel. Well, we get counsel, but not any explicit rules on those issues. Some churches get very hung up on the particular translation of the Bible that is used. Some would say the King James Version is the only legitimate translation. Any other translation is uh, not true to God's Word. We might set up policies in our own mind about how I have to pray for 30 minutes or I have to read my Bible for so much time, and it becomes this, this, this rule, this regulation that you put on yourself. Honestly, I think we got really legalistic in some cases when it came to COVID and the wearing or the not wearing of masks. And I certainly didn't see anything in Scripture telling us specifically about whether we should wear masks or not wear masks. And yet that issue just got elevated to a place of almost divine law where on whatever side of that issue people were on, they looked at the others as if they were defying God's honor by either wearing masks or not wearing masks. That's a kind of a legalism. 
I think we get into social justice issues today. Some of the social justice issues can kind of veer off into legalism, where there's this idea that you, know, you have to approach racism in a particular way. You, you have to subscribe to certain ways of dealing with the problem. And if you don't, you're somehow a lesser Christian, or you're not being obedient to God. Sometimes in social justice issues, there's a new kind of legalism. Maybe you have, in, in your own mind, uh, some of these kinds of legalism. Maybe you've seen it in, in various churches. But here ends up being the result of these kinds of legalistic tendencies is that when we set them up, we begin to feel very proud of ourselves when we obey them. And we begin to feel very judgmental of those who don't. And that's one of the real dangers of legalism. And you'll see that that's exactly what's happening in this text. So let's go back to the text. Notice the attitude of the Pharisees. The incident in the grain fields, first of all, verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? What's implied there? Pharisees are watching. They're watching Jesus and the disciples. They're looking for a gotcha moment. You know, they can't wait for Jesus and the disciples to slip up and do something wrong. And that is even said explicitly in the next incident, with the man with the withered hand, look at verse 32, or, uh, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. They, that's referring to the Pharisees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So that they might accuse him. They're looking for fault. That's what legalism does. It gets us into this mentality where we're looking at others for fault. Others constantly come under our suspicion. We develop this kind of me versus them mentality. And very few measure up to the policies and rules that we have set up. That, that's, an, that's an ugly thing to live under. There's a, a movie called The Lives of Others. <clears throat> um, about 20 years old, I think. It's set in communist East Germany, 1984, during the Cold War. And it's about a secret police agent for East Germany, for the communists. <clears throat> and um, he is set up to conduct surveillance on a writer and his girlfriend uh, because they're suspicious <clears throat> that, that he's not really devoted to the cause of East Germany. And so they've they got cameras set up in his home. They're, they're watching him 24-7 just waiting for him to slip up so they can go in and arrest him. And that's what a legalistic environment is like. It's like living in a surveillance state. You just feel like you're always being watched. Someone is always waiting for you to slip up. Friends, I, I am happy to say that I don't think that's been a problem in this congregation. I, at least I, I don't feel that, that way. Um, but let, let's keep it that way. Because uh, th this is uh, not a blessed way to live. Feeling like people are watching you so that they can accuse you. But that's what these Pharisees were doing with regard to Jesus and his disciples. And it went so far. If you go down to verse 6 of chapter 3. It went so far. Maybe this explains why Jesus was so angry about this. Because he began... He was able to see the lengths to which some people will go to make sure that you conform to their standards. 
Look what happens in verse 6. Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him. How? To destroy him. That's eventually where legalism is leading in, in this passage. Here is where the, the plans and the, <laughs> the intentions to kill Jesus, to execute him, are starting right, right here. Legalistic rules are set up. Jesus is not conforming. He must be eliminated. And what's so interesting here is that uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians were actually enemies. The Herodians were those devoted to King Herod, who was under the Roman rule. They were sympathetic to the Roman occupation. Jews hated the Roman occupation. Pharisees and Herodians did not get along, but one thing they agreed on, we got to get rid of Jesus. we got to get rid of him and his grace and his mercy toward others. And that's where legalism can lead. So it leads to pride and judgmentalism. But the third thing that we see, and the last thing, is that legalism often seeks obedience apart from relationship. Legalism seeks obedience apart from relationship. The most common kind of legalism is kind of what I've been talking about here so far, just the addition of these rules and regulations like the Pharisees set up and like the Pharisees thought Jesus and his disciples were breaking. But legalism can also happen in another way, and that's when we begin to isolate God's law from the God who gave the law. That, that is, we begin to obey God's law and the additional laws that we have made up as if obeying God's law was only a matter of just checking off a list of duties. And it becomes a very joyless impersonal process where we're just kind of going through the motions just like trying to understand the US tax law you know we're just trying to figure out all of the details we want to push all the right buttons but we forget that the whole purpose of being in relationship with God is that we would walk with him and know him and that all of our obedience to him flows out of a personal relationship with the living God legalism misses this and seeks obedience apart from this relationship with Christ. So here's how we see this. I think it's just summed up for us in verse 28 of chapter 2. And, and this is kind of, you know, this is the, the, the killer statement, uh, the climax, I think, of this entire passage when Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I mean, what an amazing statement for him to make. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, I have authority to tell you how to observe the Sabbath because I am Lord of the Sabbath. Now, when you think about where the Sabbath started in Genesis chapter 2, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Right? This is the, the God of creation who has set up this Sabbath day and called it holy. It's, it's the creator of all things who has instituted the Sabbath. And then Jesus comes here in 2.28 and says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what, what are we to make of that? I thought God was the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, if, if, if Jesus is not God himself, 
then what he is saying is something extremely blasphemous and deserving of execution. But could it be that what Jesus is saying is, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath because I am the creator of the universe standing before you in the form of a man. I am the word made flesh. That's what this is. This is a clear claim to divinity on Jesus' part. There's a lot of people that believe in Jesus as a great religious leader or a great teacher. You know, people will accept him as a, as a, a you know, person with all these wise sayings. He did lots of good things. Maybe he was a miracle worker. But they won't go the whole way and acknowledge Jesus for who he is. That is God in the flesh. And friends, if you don't see that Jesus is God in the flesh... God who has come into this world in the person of Jesus to die on the cross and be raised from the dead. If that's not the Jesus you believe in, you're not a Christian. Christians are not people who just regard Jesus as a great teacher. And this is what Jesus is making clear here. And there's a very famous quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, you must make your choice. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. A madman because he's claiming to be God when he's not. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and call him a demon, kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. (laughs) He has not left that open to us. Scriptures don't present that as an option. If you believe that, that's your invention. But what Jesus is saying here is, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The question is whether you believe that and accept that. But there's something else here that we need to see. When Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, it's like what Jesus is saying here is, I am the Sabbath. In other words, I am the source of the rest that you need. The, the rest that you are looking for, the rest from all of your efforts to prove yourself, the rest from all of your efforts to obey and be good enough for others to accept you and for God to accept you, all of your efforts to justify yourself, to atone for your own sin, to earn God's love, all of your efforts to make yourself presentable before, your, before other people just so that you can know that you're okay. What Jesus is saying here is, I, I have done that for you. You can rest in me. You can turn from that endless treadmill of performance and find your rest in what I have done. That's what Jesus is saying. I, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am here to give you rest. There's a, a great movie years ago, Chariots of Fire, about Eric Little, a Christian, uh, participating in the 1924 Olympics, and um, he he is scheduled to run on the Sabbath, and he refuses to do it. And um, there's another competitor, another athlete. His name is Harold Abrahams, and Little and Abrahams have this relationship, and there's a a part in the movie where uh, Harold Abrahams is about to run this sprint, and he says, I've got... 10 seconds to justify my existence. It's like in in how I perform here in this sprint, here's my way of making myself worthy. 10 seconds to justify my existence. Friends, no matter how many of us live that way, 
constantly trying to justify our existence by all of our efforts. This is Jesus saying, you don't have to do that if you believe in me. I mean, isn't it interesting when you think about the way Genesis begins with creation, six days of creation, and then on the seventh day, basically God says, I'm finished. It is finished. And he rests. And then Jesus, in his work of redemption, hangs on the cross and says, it is finished. The work necessary for your salvation is finished. I did it for you. You don't have to do it for yourself. Cease from your work and rest in Jesus. Sometimes married couples will um, kind of um, <clears throat> repeat their, their vows uh, to each other. And so what I'm going to have us do as we close here this morning is repeat at least one question of our membership vows from our book of church order. Question number two. So you can respond to this whether you're a member of the church or not, but um, um, perhaps this will be the first time that you actually answer affirmatively to this question. Here, here's an opportunity for you. Um, and uh, I just love how this membership question includes the word rest. That's what it is to be a Christian. It's to rest, to rest in Jesus. So I'm going to ask you the question, and um, if you can answer in good conscience, we do. Let's have you say that, okay? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel? We do. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the rest that you give us, not just rest from our daily labors, but also our rest from all of our labors to earn our salvation. Forgive us for those times, Lord, when we think we can do it. But thank you, God, that in the person of Jesus, you have done the work for us. So on this day, Sunday, Lord, help us to rest from all of our labors, but most of all, help us as we meditate on the rest we have in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.